Welcome to the RegenMed Saga, Stories from the Front. I'm your host, Leah Brattle, CEO of Data Biologics. We have a great guest today, Dr. Chris Rogers, who's going to share his story from the front lines in regenerative medicine. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Rogers. Glad to be here. Awesome. As one of the founding physicians of our company, Data Biologics, you and I talk a lot about outcomes data and the business of being a digital company. And of course, Star Wars too. Important. (laughs) But we haven't spent much time talking about your story and what got you into regenerative medicine and the practice you have now. Yes, so I um, I started my training in sports medicine many years ago in the 80s as an athletic trainer, and that's where I fell in love with the bones and muscles and tendons, the musculoskeletal medicine, we call it. And so that led me on a path to uh, completing a residency in physical medicine and rehabilitation at uh, University of Texas San Antonio after completing medical school. I did a quick uh, fellowship year in sports and spine care in Texas. And then I came back to my home of San Diego because my wife and I just were homesick. So um, fast forward about eight years later, I'm in private practice. Uh, and you know now I'm now having treated patients with steroid injections, physical therapy, the standard of care in the early 2000s. That's what it was. Um, and I had a friend and patient of mine who was um, one of the top 50 golfer, uh, golf instructors in the world. Uh, who knew about PRP from the professional athletes that he was working with, and they were doing platelet-rich plasma injections in um, Europe. So he came to me, his name's Dave. Dave came to me and he said, I have tennis elbow and I think I need PRP. And I was like, what's this PRP thing? Not heard of it. There was only one paper published in the entire orthopedic literature at that point, since I think 2008. And... um, Anyway, and I had been using ultrasound at that point for over six years. So I took a look. I saw he had a tear in his tendon. And then um, we figured out how to make this PRP thing by using a centrifuge and spinning his blood down. It was a very crude method back then. Injected his tendon and then waited for something to happen. Um, I would look at his tendon under the ultrasound images every couple of weeks. And the first thing I noticed is that he was growing blood vessels in the injury site. And that was pretty cool because I had never seen that before. And then about six, eight weeks later, I noticed that his tendon was starting to heal. And by three months, he was completely healed. The tear in his tendon was gone. And he was able to play golf and do all the things he wanted to do without pain. So that's sort of when the light bulb first went off in my head that, oh, my gosh, there's something here that we need to learn more about. Love that. Love that. I love the, the transition or the story around uh, PRP. Today, I really want to talk about stem cells. So mm-hmm. As you know, I went to school for cellular molecular engineering. Um, and the idea that there were these chameleon cells that with the right chemical soup could just turn into anything um, was just totally fascinating to me. I thought this is going to change the world. But 20 years later, 20 years has passed since I went to school, and there's still no mainstream application. Why is that? Um, well, as you know, uh, so let's just first start by talking about stem cells. What is a stem cell? Um, you know, the stem cell that we talk a lot about in orthopedics is really a misnomer. It was called a stem cell earlier by Dr. Kaplan in the 90s because they knew in the lab that this cell could differentiate, it could transform into cartilage cell, a bone cell, a tendon cell, a nerve cell. That was very exciting. But in reality, what we're learning is that these cells 
uh, secrete molecules uh, that influence the cells in your body. So in a way, they're like a little medicine cabinet that will release medicines on demand to stimulate the healing, healing process. So they're still involved in healing, but not in the way that a stem cell might uh, promote healing. So, so that took us 20 years to figure out. We, the collective we, the scientific community. Um, the second issue, the second issue is that the, the FDA regulates these cells, uh, even though they're your cells, they regulate them as if they're a drug. And any doctor or company that produces a product that contains these cells has to go through the regulatory pathway. So you have to go through clinical studies and that takes time. Uh, as you know, I just finished um, a phase one, two A study looking at patients with knee osteoarthritis using cells from their fat, uh, uh, and there's many different kinds of cells we can talk about. Um, but you know, it took us two years to do that study. We still have to do a phase two and phase three study before the FDA will even consider uh, granting an app, uh, approval for what they call DLA, which allows physicians to offer these treatments that have been proven to be safe and effective uh, per FDA standards uh, uh, allow us to treat our patients. Let's, let's talk about clinical trials. So, you know, we're, we as the public consumers of medicine, we're aware that things have to go through this scientific rigor and that there's studies right. and clinical trials. But underneath that, there's a lot of complexity. That you mentioned phase one, and then there's phase twos and threes. What is a phase one clinical trial? Well, a phase one trial is essentially a safety study. So first, even before you do a phase one study, generally, you have to demonstrate safety in an animal model. So if you want to treat knee arthritis with a cell that's derived from fat tissue, something called an adipose-derived MSE, uh, that generally would have to have been studied in a mouse or a rat model, much like every other drug in your medicine cabinet was first studied in an animal. Fortunately, our particular the company that I work for, Personalized Stem Cell, as their medical director, their parent company, VetStem Biopharma, has been delivering this treatment to animal patients for you know, almost 20 years. So we had a vast amount of data that we were able to present to FDA and submit as our preclinical data showing safety. Then the FDA would allow our company to conduct a phase one safety study in humans. So we treat, as you know, we treated 29 patients with knee arthritis and showed that the product is safe. The next phase two, you have to demonstrate efficacy versus placebo. So one group would get the you know, injection of normal saline into their joint. Another group would get these cells. And then you see if there's a difference in terms of the efficacy, the improvement over time. And then after you complete your phase two study, then you need to do a larger phase three study. So instead of doing tens of patients or hundreds of patients, you might have to do many hundreds of patients uh, to really uh, demonstrate that this product is effective. So with the, the study that you're running, so today on Data Biologics, we track adipose receivers. And, that's right. But that's not technically what we're talking about when we're talking about you know, injecting yeah. stem cells. So what's the difference between that and, and what you guys are studying in the trial? So the FDA has guidelines that they've issued to physicians and to industry as to what we can and cannot do in terms of what requires an FDA approval. So, for example, we treat patients, we have treated patients for the last eight or nine years using the cells in a patient's own fat. 
but we use a method that um, uses a device. If you think of it, so, uh, a little a little uh, container that has sterile water in it, has some filters. You can push the fat through it. It will rinse it and wash it and maybe concentrate the cells that we want a little bit better than just the fat that we're taking out of the patient, uh, which of course we're obtaining by liposuction, right? So we do the liposuction, we rinse it and we wash it in a device that has an FDA, a 510K clearance, an FDA uh, approved device. At that point, the physician is now practicing medicine using an FDA approved device. If you then took the product that is that comes out of that device and took it to our lab here in San Diego and did some additional processing so you could extract out more cells, maybe even grow them in the lab for a month. So now you take 1 million uh, MSCs, we call them mesenchymal stem cell or mesenchymal medicinal signaling cell, uh, MSC for short. Uh, if we grow that from 1 million cells to 10 million or 20 million cells, now the FDA says you are manufacturing a drug that has to be approved by the FDA before it can be released to patients. So there's a difference between the practice of medicine using an FDA approved device versus a company manufacturing a highly purified, high, well-characterized cell therapy that requires FDA approval. Got it. Let's talk about the FDA and what they're saying about all of this. So I read the warning that they put out. And while it's generally straightforward and the need to be cautious and study the application, lots of controls, so all this, this um, you know, phases of different trials, yep. in that warning, you know, one link leads to another, and there, it's a whole lot more complicated after that. Listing yep. out all of the different products that are approved and aren't approved and these nuanced, like, specific conditions that it's okay to use it with. But, and, and, and yet, stem cell therapy is advertised everywhere. Um, the patients leave the country for these therapies. So help us make sense of the, you know, really worth the FDA's stance and all the controversy that is around this and why it is the way that it is right now. Yeah, well, so, you know, when we first, when the, when the um, public first learned about the concept of a stem cell, there was a lot of excitement and frankly, a lot of hype around what was possible. The reality of translating the science of what these cells can do to an actual therapeutic and you know, safe and effective therapy, that's what takes so long. That takes decades to get to that point where we can deliver a product. Unfortunately, uh, the, um, we'll just say certain, certain, certain parties in the United States and elsewhere um, sort of took advantage of the public's appetite for having stem cell therapy now. And so they were releasing products that were not yet tested for safety or for efficacy. And there was a window of time where the FDA was a little lax and they were allowing companies to gather data and maybe treat patients. Uh, but that, that period has ended. The FDA is very clear now that if you don't meet these certain guidelines, you cannot release these products to the patients. And the type of products we're mostly talking about here are what we would call a donor product or an out, what they call allogeneic product. And um, that is a cell that doesn't come from you. It usually comes from uh, umbilical cord blood, uh, umbilical cord tissue, placenta. There's other donor sources. It could even be bone marrow or fat derived, but it does, it's not your bone marrow. You're not, you're, it's not your fat. It's coming from a donor. And the FDA has always said, that requires FDA approval. That that has never been 
really permitted. And um, the rest of the story is uh, there are still companies that sell, you know, a bottle of stem cells. But we know that from studies that our friends have published that most of these products do not contain living cells. So it gets even worse. Not only are these products illegal, if they were legitimate stem cells, and vocal cords say stem cells or amniotic fluid stem cells in the bottle, uh, we know that most of these products don't even contain live stem cells because when they uh, try to sterilize, you know, obviously childbirth is a messy procedure, so there's bacteria. So when they sterilize the umbilical cord tissues, uh, they also kill all the stem cells that are in there. So it's not a viable product. So either way, it's either it's either not a viable product or it's an illegal product. Either way, it's not permitted. That does that hasn't present, uh, prevented hundreds of clinics from offering these products, but they either do so uh, in a naive way, they don't understand that the law does not permit it, or they do so in a way that's really just financially motivated and not ethically appropriate. So, you know, this, this past weekend, we were at the Interventional Orthobiologics Annual Meeting, and you and I um, spoke with one of your colleagues who's part of the Mayo Clinic, and the study that they, um, actually, that he spoke about on the, on the podium was really looking at why patients are looking for this. What brings them to searching for stem cell therapy? What, what do they think they're going to gain out of it? And I'd yeah. love your take on that as well, because, you know, it's, it's a hot topic and it's all over the Internet. So what, what is driving that demand? Huge need. Uh, anybody over a certain age starts getting wear and tear. Their tendons tear. They get arthritis. They're in pain. The standard of care doesn't always meet the needs of that person. You know, physical therapy helps a lot of folks. An occasional cortisone shot may help a lot of folks. But there's a there's a large number of people who fall in a, a treatment gap where conservative care hasn't helped. They really aren't a candidate or don't want to have a surgical procedure. So they're looking for answers and, you know, they're uninformed. So they don't realize that these products are illegal. They don't realize these products don't contain the stem cells that they're being told they contain. So there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of misinformation. And really what it comes down to as a physician, we are obligated, if we're gonna, if we're gonna treat you, particularly if we're gonna treat you with something that hasn't been fully tested yet, we need to have full disclosure to that patient. We need to help them understand the science as best we can, help them understand what this treatment might do, but what it hasn't yet been proven to do. Uh, and that's called informed consent. And every physician is obligated to do that. And unfortunately, in a lot of these clinics, that's not, that's not happening. So actually, bring, this brings up my next question. So what should patients ask their physician when they're considering experimental treatment? So maybe let's start with what does it mean to be experimental? So you mentioned there's FDA-approved devices that you're able to then make judgment, your clinical judgment to use. But... Technically, it's still an experimental procedure. Even the ones that have been done for 20 years now, um, how, how does that, how does, what should patients be really asking about? Yeah, fortunately, there are resources now, you know, five, 10 years ago, there weren't that many resources for these patients to, to rely upon to get good information. And so they were just at the mercy of whoever they happened to be sitting in front of, whichever physician they were happening to be talking to. Um, now there are a lot more resources. The FDA website has some information. So if you just, you know, Google FDA stem cell, there's some information. Uh, you mentioned Shane Shapiro, Dr. Shapiro. 
uh, has a, a consulting service that the Mayo Clinic offers. So if you have something that's um, maybe outside the realm of orthopedics, multiple sclerosis, ALS, one of these um, uh, medical conditions that really uh, doesn't have great treatment options and interested in knowing stem cells are a viable solution or not, Shane is a great resource for that. I actually put together a booklet that you can download. Here's just a shameless plug for my website. Uh, if you just Google, I think if you Google SDOMG Patient's Guide to Stem Cell Clinics, it'll pop up. It's just a free uh, ebook, really. And in that book, I'll just tell you the high points are, um, first and foremost, we believe that those of us in the community that do this for a living for a long time and have dedicated our professional careers to it, we believe, first and foremost, you should see a physician, a board-certified physician, in the specialty for which you are seeking advice. So if you have questions about multiple sclerosis, you should talk to a neurologist. If you have questions about your knee arthritis, you should talk to a board-certified either orthopedic surgeon or physical medicine physician, uh, somebody who's, who at least understands what other treatments are out there uh, and knows how to diagnose you properly. That's, that's first. The next thing that has to happen is that doctor has to have a clear understanding of what treatments are permitted by the FDA. So uh, PRP, platelet-rich plasma, permitted by the FDA. Bone marrow transplant, where we take bone marrow from your pelvis and inject it into a joint or tendon, permitted by the FDA. Same with the fat that we talked about earlier. Uh, cultured stem cells, where you grow 10, 20, 30 million stem cells in a bottle, not yet FDA approved, requires FDA approval. Same with stromal vascular fraction, which is SVF, which is a, a multicellular fat-derived stem cell type treatment, also requires FDA approval. So if the doctor is offering you a donor product, a cultured stem cell product that has millions of stem cells in it, just know that that doctor is not allowed to do that unless it's through a clinical trial. And then finally, does that doctor, say that doctor is going to do PRP or do fat-derived cell treatment for you, do they have the appropriate training? You know, it's it's not rocket science, but there's a skill involved. You have to understand how to use an ultrasound or a fluoroscope to look into the body and deliver these cells. There's a proper way to prepare the cells so that you get the maximum benefit. And then finally, of course, another self-serving plug, physicians should be tracking their data. You know, we can talk a little bit more about that, but if the physician is showing that they are committed to moving the field forward, by tracking how patients are doing with these investigational and new innovative therapies. And that just shows that they're fully committed to this. Group. So that's actually great. I, I definitely want to talk more about the reasons to collect data on this, on this podcast, but maybe, um, you know, you just talked about what a patient seems to be looking for. And then you mentioned this informed consent, this process of educating the patients when they're thinking about treatment, but in this space, things are moving so fast. Their information is changing all the time. How do you as the physician stay up to date? What are those go-to sources of information to stay up to date? Uh, really, three main sources. Uh, first, the published literature. Fortunately, we live in a world where it's really easy to get uh, published scientific papers. You know, when I was a kid in medical school, you had to go to the library, pull the book off the shelf, go to Xerox machine, make a copy. So now you just go on. You just go online and you find the papers. You can go to uh, pubmed.gov, so P-U-B-M-E-D.gov. If you want to be sort of a citizen scientist, go to pubmed.gov. Type in whatever it is you're interested in. 
there are just tens of thousands of articles in this space that you can uh, learn. And that's what I do. So I pull those articles weekly. I have a routine every Friday. I pull 30 or 40 articles and then I read them over the weekend. Uh, and so I'm just always ingesting these this new data. Um, the other source, of course, is we go to conferences where we either lecture or we listen to lecture from, from our colleagues. Uh, and then afterwards, we capture them in the hallway or take them to lunch and really learn what's new in their particular space. Uh, and then we learn from our patients just by doing, being in the trenches with our patients. And thank God for our patients who are willing to trust us and to try something new. Uh, not because they're desperate, because they're well-informed and they realize that we think there's a better than 50% chance that we can help them with low risk. Uh, and by collecting their data for the past, I don't know, 12, 13 years, I've learned a lot from just my own patients in my clinic. So let's talk about the collecting of data, my favorite, yeah. my favorite topic. So maybe share with our audience a little more about why you founded Data Biologics. What was the gap that needed to be filled there? And what what is it now that we are? What's the mission that we're now running after? So as you know, Data Biologics was founded by my colleagues, Dr. Jerry Malanga and Dr. Jay Bone, who are also physical medicine rehab physicians. And I'd known them for God, probably 15, 17 years before we even thought of this. But we were sort of independently uh, collecting data on Excel spreadsheets in our office. And it was extremely uh, labor intensive. Uh, you know, we had to train our staff how to administer these surveys to the patient. We had to ask our patients, please fill out the survey. And then we had to manually enter the data into a spreadsheet and then figure out how to analyze it. And then um, maybe I'm a little slow to the table, but I realized, gosh, everybody's walking around with one of these in their pockets. Wouldn't it be nicer if we, automated the process a little bit. And um, and this was, at the same time, it was driven by the fact that I was reading papers on, say, platelet-rich plasma, but I knew for every one patient that was in a published paper, there were probably 100 patients in the United States getting this treatment for which we had no accountability to them. We had no tracking of their data. We didn't know if this was having adverse side effects or if they were getting wonderful effects. And so when a patient would say, you know, will this work? I'd say, well, this paper in Harvard said this, you know, but that's different than real world data. So, so I think sort of at the same time, Jerry, Jay and I kind of all had this idea that we could help our colleagues and ourselves, frankly, to make it, make the whole data collection process easier uh, so that we could get robust real world data. And that's, you know, it just started, like I said, at a medical conference. We were just sitting around talking, and this it just this how it came up. So now that you know, I'm coming to the picture, and I'm getting to talk to a lot of a lot of your colleagues who adopted the the platform early. And I think there's a certain mindset there, very similar to what you're describing, which is this commitment to evidence and knowing that we have to have the data to advance the field and give people the right information to produce the right informed consent. But there's also just this, you know, wide spectrum of belief in the physician community that, well, data collection is left to the academics. And that's what we wait for. We wait for those publications to come out and that sort of guides the, guides the direction. Uh, but sometimes those publications are delayed. You know, ha ha it's not current information or relevant, like you said, one patient, but 
there's a hundred more that may or may not have had that same experience. So how do we you know, start to make data collection in practice the mainstream thought versus the you know only reserved for people who are academically minded and, and willing to commit to that? Yeah, it's really not an either-or proposition. We need both. We need well-designed clinical trials that are executed in a way that maintains high data fidelity and that we can really trust the results. But everything comes with a trade-off, right? So well-done studies means you're going to maybe narrow the population of patients you're going to look at. Maybe I'm not going to look at my 88-year-old patient who wants the height you know, who has severe bone-on-bone knee arthritis. You know, maybe I'm not going to look at patients who have medical conditions that I think might interfere with my treatment. So when you design clinical trials, there are some trade-offs where we're really boiling down the population to a subset that doesn't always reflect what's happening in the clinic. The real-world data, you treat everybody. So, I mean, we track everybody. So patients uh, who may not qualify for a clinical trial are still, we're going to still follow their data. Maybe it doesn't have the high fidelity that we would see in a um, uh, in a uh, you know FDA approved clinical trial, for example. Nonetheless, we you know with data biologics, as you know, we make a lot of efforts to maintain the integrity of the data. For example, we don't let physicians enter the patient's survey. The patients are entering their own data. That data is secured by a variety of methods so that um, we have a, a accountability. We can track. And track the source of that data for its accuracy. Uh, we use validated studies, you know, that are similar. I mean, validated surveys that are similar to the surveys that you would use in a clinical trial. So um, the benefit of real-world data is you get a lot more of it. Uh, uh, it's not, you know, it reflects what's actually happening in the clinic, um, you know, and uh, and um, it's not placebo-controlled, of course. But we can study the patients experience over years. And I can tell you there really aren't too many placebos that will last years. And so if you're seeing an efficacy at one year, two year, that, that's probably true efficacy. So it says it says something that's I think valuable. But both, I think in summary, both are necessary. It's just like you said, the the published paper, for example, my study I started I don't know, three and a half years ago. I still haven't published it yet. So by the time it gets published you know that's some that's old data, it's still good data, but it's old data. So I think I think the other benefit of real world data is, is real time, right? So we we know how people that got treated last week are doing. Uh, I think that's valuable, particularly when you're looking at adverse events. Let's talk, let's talk about that. Let's talk about adverse events. Um, you know, I know when I'm looking at the the data, there's one question on unexpected outcomes. So there's Something happened that you didn't expect to happen, but it may or may not be relevant to the procedure itself. But right. out of you know, we want our physicians to know that that's what the patient's experience is. And then there's actually things that are severe or did cause the patient need to go to the emergency room or, or go to surgery. What what are some of those things that you see as you know this is part of the treatment versus this is something we don't want to see happen as part of the treatment. And, and then what should patients do about it? Well, we have, we, there are a number of tricks. So in my world, in the orthopedic world, we're doing injections. So we're not doing surgery. surgery so thankfully, uh, we eliminate a lot of risk by just doing you know, a simpler procedure. Um, you know, early on, there was a concern that if we took cells from the bone marrow or cells from the fat, uh, the, you know, 
we'll just call them stem cells, but the MSCs or other cells for that matter, there was concern that they would have an adverse effect on patients who maybe had a history of cancer, that it might cause a recurrence in their cancer. So fortunately, more and more data has come out where I think those fears have been largely put to rest. We still need larger long-term follow-up data, but I would say so far things are looking very good in that regard. But the real, the, the more common adverse events that we would see would be pain, right? So you stick a needle in somebody, they're going to have pain. Um, but we wanted to quantitate that. We wanted, is it mild pain? Is it severe pain? Did it require treatment? Did it not require treatment? Um, infection rate, you know, if, if doctors are not held accountable to the procedures they're doing and they're not tracking their outcomes, how do we know what the true infection rate is for some of these procedures? I think what we're learning surprisingly, is that some of the um, injections in the disc. So we have patients who have chronic low back pain and you might inject bone marrow cells into the disc. And generally speaking, injecting bone marrow cells into a knee has been pretty good. We don't really see a high infection rate, but there's a not insignificant infection rate associated with injecting the disc. So that's something we would not have known had we not been tracking uh, this data. And uh, certainly didn't show up in the published uh, clinical trial data. So, um, but, you know, cell therapy, generally speaking, is, is fortunately very safe. Uh, we don't, we don't see any long-term, uh, adverse events on, on a regular, on any consistent basis. It's really that short-term adverse event profile that we're wanting to follow so that we can, again, give full informed consent to the patient. It also helps us know which treatments might be better tolerated. So, for example, we, when we talk about platelet-rich plasma, you know, there's platelets in the blood, there's plasma, but there are also white blood cells. You, depending on how you make your PRP cocktail, it may have more or less white blood cells, and that may correlate with the amount of pain you have after the injection, because we know white cells can promote inflammation, and they may make your knee swell for a week after injection, whereas perhaps a PRP cocktail that has no white cells or fewer white cells maybe less important to do that. That's that's another reason why we, we find it important to collect this data. So with the with data collection and your own practice experience, is there anything that you have changed or abandoned based on what the evidence has shown you? Yeah, and it's sort of parallel what's happening in the published literature. So the first thing is and actually this is still true today, we do not know with high degree of certainty the absolute correct uh, platelet concentration, platelet dose to administer to a given condition. We have some good data now for knee arthritis that we want to have 10 billion platelets in our PRP treatment. Um, we didn't really know that um, uh, till A, for some good papers got published, but B, in our own registry, we started to see this because we have a number of physicians in the, in the group, in the network, that have cell counters in their office. And you can see the correlation between cell count and efficacy or cell count and adverse events. So now that needs to expand beyond knees and include shoulders and hips and thumbs and other body parts so that we can get closer to knowing what the uh, appropriate dose for a given condition might be. And it may also vary, it may vary by body part. It may also vary by the degree of the severity of the injury. So mild tear may not be as high a dose as a more severe tendon tear might require. So for, for you, um, I guess early on, do you still 
prescribe things like opioids or other alternatives? Or is that something that is just not part of the practice? No. Um, I mean, we, you know, post-treatment, we might. So if we inject a patient with cells into their disc is a one of the more uncomfortable procedures we do. So there may be uh, two or three days of uh, use for that. But uh, we're sort of, um, we have better options, I'll just put it that way. Uh, the need for long-term opioid uh, maintenance is not necessary if you actually heal the patient. You know, so in the case of my friend, I told you, Dave, I injected his elbow. He'd been living with this tear in his tendon for more than a year. Uh, now here we are 14 years later. I scanned it not too long ago, and it still looks good. So um, in the cases where you actually heal the injury, there's no need for ongoing pain management. Actually, you bring up another. We had this conversation a few weeks ago about the duration of symptoms and how people who have a condition for longer versus super short time, like what is that sweet spot and what's the impact of how long somebody's injury has been? Um, so we're seeing this in the data biologics data, right? Where we ask the patient, how long have you been suffering with symptoms? And we stratify in one month, one to three months, three to six months and beyond. And uh, there definitely is a correlation that um, folks who have had pain for you know, longer periods of time uh, take longer to heal and also um, maybe need a little more treatment. So either repeat treatment or some additional uh, multi-modality approach. And um, it makes sense because I think of my lawn, you know, my backyard, I've got a little lawn for the rabbits to use. And um, if I don't water my lawn for a week, it gets a little brown. All I have to do is turn the water back up and then the lawn greens up again. But if I went on vacation and ignored that lawn for a couple of months, it's going to need a lot more than just a little bit of water. It's going to need some fertilizer. I might even have to resod it and put some more seed in there. And so the analogy is similar to, it's analogous to what we, how we're treating our patients. So I think if you catch an injury within that first one to three months, uh, simple treatments, you know, simple one, you know, one modality, whether it's shockwave or PRP uh, or some, you know, physical therapy for that matter, um, can be effective. But as you let that injury progress, it becomes more complicated. Other tissues become involved. I think the biology of the tissue changes. You get these chronic inflammatory states that are sort of self-sustaining. You have uh, new sensory nerve innervation, so you can get central sensitization, where now you have your whole nervous system is involved in what originally started as an orthopedic injury. So it just becomes multi-layered, which means you, as a doctor, have to provide a customized treatment plan that addresses all the different layers that are now driving that person's symptoms. Um, and so that's something we're starting to see and tease out with the data biologics registry. But clearly, uh, you know this, when we looked at the one to three month day, when patients were treated within that one to three month period after symptoms started, they tended to have a more robust improvement than patients who were certainly longer than that. And not, and then the patients who had pain for less than a month—that's sort of natural history. A lot of those folks just sort of get better on their own. Makes sense. Well, that's that's all the questions I have for you today. But would love for you to share a little bit more about how people can get in touch with you. Um, anything else you'd like our our audience to know? 
Yeah, um, I think the first thing I would tell folks is that um, there certainly is hope. And the, these treatments that we're talking about, whether it's platelet-rich plasma, cells derived from your own bone marrow, your own fat, um, some of these other non-invasive uh, conservative treatments, they are transforming orthopedic health care. There's no doubt. The, the devil's in the details. You know, will it work for me as an individual? And that requires uh, us to continue to collect data, continue to do research, continue to push the envelope and learn what works and what's not working for different conditions. So there's real hope. Uh, you want to find, a, like I said, a board-certified physician who is committed to learning and understanding and applying regenerative medicine in a way that's FDA-compliant and also responsible. Um, you know, if you're a scientist and you want to learn about what's happening in the field, like I said, PubMed.gov is a great source. If you're a patient who's maybe trying to get into a clinical trial, there's a website called clinicaltrials.gov. Both these websites you pay for with your taxes, by the way. So clinicaltrials.gov, uh, and you just type in you know, your condition, and you can see who's doing the research in this space. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, I'm in San Diego. Uh, my website, sdomg.com, which is San Diego uh, Orthobiologic Medical Group. Um, and uh, but we have a lot of great colleagues. If you're not in San Diego, you can call me or text me and I'll refer you to one of our great colleagues around the country. Well, thanks for our viewers for tuning in today for another episode of the Regen Med Saga. I'm your host, Leah Brattle. Please like, comment, and share to do your part in bringing more awareness to the promising and emerging field of regenerative medicine. Tune in next time for more stories from the front. 